Radio listener, it's that time of year again. March 1st through 5th, it's time for the 4th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Over 40 comics, 25 shows, 5 days, all here at Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street. 25 shows, 5 days, amazing comics from all over the United States here in San Francisco to entertain you with 25 differently themed shows hosted by local San Francisco comedians bringing you comedians from all over the United States here. Everything will be live, live streaming and podcast post. Get your tickets, $10 a show, 25 shows, a million laughs. It's the fourth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival brought to you by Benders, Counter Offer and Subliminal SF.
had yesterday to learn it, and so we'll see. What's gonna happen now? you didn't already know it you're listening to labor and love radio on mutiny radio mutiny.fm your mission district cultural center we've got paintings we've got collages we've got comedy we've got video we've got radio we've got a deal where you can buy two hours of time here and have your own event here at Mutiny Radio in the heart of the mission at 2781 21st Street. And me, I'm Bill Morgan, the B. And the show is Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, 
someone else work for a dollar they didn't get. And you think about all those great fortunes, all those billionaires and millionaires out there. Where did that money come from? That came from taking <clears throat> the product of workers' work, the surplus, and confiscating it, getting value out of it. The second thing to remember is that if you don't have a place at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. They're talking about you and your time and your time here on earth and how that time on earth is going to go, at least a third of it, without your even being there. And don't tell me you're not into politics. The landlord's into politics. The insurance agent is into politics. Your boss is into politics. And every day, your boss and those insurance agents, every day, They're figuring out ways to make you pay more and earn less. And landlords figuring out ways that to raise your rent. Maybe it's time to get into politics, huh? What do you think, huh? <laughs> and number three, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Always let people into your heart who would stop along the way and help that. Be the Samaritan who helps that battered stranger on the road. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. When I say labor, I mean you. Well, we've had an eventful week. Um... Looks like Mr. Trump has met a Waterloo. Hopefully. Hopefully he's been defeated. Uh, I, I thought of George Lakoff. Lakoff, of course, is a linguist and psychologist from UC Berkeley who um, explained Trump's victory as a way of phrasing, uh, of setting up communication And um, one thing he said, that someone like Trump, who is uh, taking over the role of the father, can't lose. He can't lose. And this is obviously a loss for him. Only because he set it up like that. This was his doing. When he stood there on TV and said, I take responsibility for the wall, uh, for the... Shut down, by the way. Why do we call it a shutdown? We'll get to that, too. I'll be proud to shut down the government for border security. I'll take it on myself. All those times he said he was going to build a wall and Mexico was going to pay for it. Sometimes just rushing in and saying the boldest thing you can 
just to win gets you in trouble. Now he is in trouble. Let's check this out. Four reasons why Trump blinked. This is on the BBC News. Here are four reasons from the business world why the White House blinked. Number one. Delays at major airports. The travel industry was stressed. Delays at major airports on Friday brought brought to a head issues that had been affecting airports for weeks. Staff shortages. People working without pay since the start of the shutdown. Failing to report for duty. The TSA unexpected absences had more than doubled from a year ago to more than 7% with many claiming financial limitations. What if you can't afford, you know, you don't have the money for gas to drive to your job? What if you don't have money to get your uniform cleaned or whatever whatever the necessities for your job? Or how about child care? All of a sudden, you're not getting any money, so who's going to take care of your kid (laughs) or kids while you go to work? Number two, Washington was reeling. 800,000 federal workers affected by the shutdown might have been able to absorb one missed paycheck, but a second one starts to hurt especially in a country where an estimated 40% of adults don't have funds to cover an unexpected $400 expense. The richest country in the world, the richest country in the history of the world, America, exceptional America, two-fifths of your people couldn't absorb a $400 expense. 78% of your people are living from check to check. In the D.C. region where an estimated one in six workers was affected, the shutdown could have shaved 2.5% of the quarterly economic growth of the region if it had lasted through March. Despite the pain, the administration was widely criticized for being unsympathetic. It started to hurt the president's approval ratings and will continue to do so. That blip in people's lives doesn't go away. Okay, you've got to absorb that. You've got to make enough money so you can climb out of debt. And the officials, government officials were saying, well, why don't you just get a loan? (laughs) Why don't you just get a loan? That's all you need to do. Well, see, that changes your whole financial picture if you're going along from paycheck to paycheck. Because during the shutdown, you've incurred all these debts and now you've got to pay them off. Number three, the Fed and others were flying blind. What's amazing, let me reiterate. What's amazing is how out of touch these people are, and that's 
probably true of a lot of the Democrats too, with everyday lives of people. The shutdown coincided with a critical time for the economy as conflicting economic signals aggravate debates about how much higher the Federal Reserve should raise interest rates. The fact that reliable measures of recent GDP and its components are unavailable can only generate more economic uncertainty. Number four, more pain was about to appear. The federal court system warned it would exhaust its funding this month. Food subsidies for low-income families were expected to run out in February. The Trump administration worked hard to shield the wider public from the effects of the shutdown, recalling staff to process items such as tax returns. At a Chamber of Commerce event on Friday, Greg Fitzgerald, president of the Virginia-based Contractor Information Technology Coalition, said his firm has yet to be paid for government work it completed in December and had to place 200 of the firm's 350 staff on leave. It's real, he said. There are families out there that are going to make significant sacrifices for something that wasn't their fault. Here we are trapped in the, the system of capitalism where you have to work to survive. Okay, now what happened if you take away all the Pelosi, Trump, all the Democrat left-right nonsense and look at it right square in the eye, this was a lockout. A lockout. Labor knows all about this stuff. The labor movement knows all about this stuff. They know it's not a work stop uh, shutdown. It's a lockout. And the fact that workers are ordered to come back to work without pay is a shakedown. Shakedown. Favorite tactics of employers. So those are four reasons why Mr. Trump had to finally come to the table after, what, three, 32 days, almost five weeks, and sign off on something where he won nothing at all. They didn't agree to build his wall for him. They didn't agree to give him money. What they agreed to was become part of a panel and talk about it, which is what they were proposing all along. No, no. Mr. Trump took a bridge too far. Well, here, here's another... Here's another reason. Number five, okay? And this is, this is the reason uh, that I favor. Working people were starting to wake up and see themselves as workers. Government employees, yeah, oh yeah, right. We're still going to get you to work without pay. We're still going to get you to leave your job. Some of you 
If you come back to work, you're going to get penalized. Others of you, if you don't work, you're going to get penalized. You'll lose your job. Well, here's the, here's the fifth. Workers were starting to talk about things like strikes. What if the air traffic control workers had gone on strike? This is the president of the uh, airline's hostess, let's see, named Sarah Nelson, Union of uh, Airline Workers. Here's what she had to say. Sexual harassment is not about sex. It's about power. Women can have a voice in their workplace and have respect on the job. We said to the industry, look, you cannot continue to allow us to work in an environment that was set up to be sexualized. We do need to denounce that era and set a new marker here. When the president is allowing this to go on, we are unsafe. Imagine how much stronger we can be if we check our biases and look for leaders in every gender, race, culture, and creed. Sometimes we fight by rallying, sometimes we fight by marching, sometimes we fight by singing, sometimes we fight by striking. But above all, when we fight, we fight together. Okay, that was Sarah Nelson, and I'm looking for um, a story here where she Calls, on, calls for a general strike. Um, let's see. Give me a second here. Listen to some jazz. It don't mean a thing. Don't mean a thing if you ain't got that swing, boy. I said, don't mean a thing. And all you got to do is sing like la 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 da la do do so do so. Nah, it makes no difference if it's sweet or hot. Just to give that rhythm everything you got. Oh, don't mean a thing. Okay, that was a little jazz. You probably recognize that as uh, Louis Armstrong. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing by Edward Kennedy Ellington. Okay, back to Sarah Nelson. This is Sarah Nelson accepting an award is not about okay um let's see so sarah nelson is talking about sexual harassment but i wanted to get the uh text of her okay at any rate i'm saying that's why that's one reason why Mr. Trump clo- uh, got the government and the Democrats. Now, the, the, the Democrats signed, too. They didn't want this to go on indefinitely because workers were starting to realize 
hey, you're a worker. You know, you're not the king of the hill. Your job can be taken away from you anytime we want. And you can be ordered off your job or you can be ordered on your job without pay. Okay, so here's what Sarah Nelson said. I am proud to represent my union tonight, the Association of Flight Attendants. And um, during the work of our Human Rights Committee, so she's talking about that. Receiving this award is an honor I can't begin to properly express. Thank you to the FL Civil and Human Rights Committee, President Trumka, Secretary Treasurer Schuler, and exactly okay. So she's give, been given this award. This award is not about me. This award was created to honor the legacy of Dr. King. This award is about all of us. We are together here tonight because he called us together. He called on us to come together with the fierce urgency of now to fight for justice. Our calling is now. There's a humanitarian crisis unfolding right now for our 800,000 federal sec sector sisters and brothers who are either locked out of work or forced to come to work without pay due to the government shutdown. Lockout, I want to say. Shakedown. These are real people who are facing real consequences of being dragged into the largest shutdown in history. No money to pay for rent for children or a tank of gas to get to work. The federal worker stretching insulin through the night and wondering if she will wake up in the morning transportation security officer in her third trimester with no certainty for her unborn child. The corrections officer who tried to take his own life because he saw no other way out. The air traffic controller who whispered to his union leader, I just don't know how long I can hang on. The situation is changing rapidly. Major airports are already seeing security checkpoints closing. I have a growing concern for our members' safety and security. As I have said many times in recent days, safety and security are unnegotiable, non-negotiable. If they can't do their job, those TSA workers, I can't do mine. Dr. King said, their destiny is tied up in our destiny. We cannot walk alone. Federal workers here tonight, stand up. Flight attendants and aviation workers, stand up. Nurses who count on the medicine we deliver on our planes, stand up. Everyone who flew to this conference, Stand up. Anyone who believes it's a crime to make people work without pay, stand up. Federal workers, we've got your back. We need to follow Dr. King's lead and think big. Think big like hotel workers who took on the largest hotel chain in the world and won. Think big like the teachers in Los Angeles who this very minute are taking on powerful hedge funds to save public education for our children. 
We can end this shutdown together. Almost a million workers are locked out or being forced to work without pay. Where is, what is the labor movement waiting for? Go back to the fierce urgency of now to talk to your locals and in unions and all unions joining together to end this shutdown with a general strike. We can do this together. Si se puede. Every gender, race, culture, and creed, the American labor movement. We have the power. Okay, those are the words of Sarah Nelson, head of the uh, Flight Attendants Union and the uh, TSA workers. I don't know if they have a union or not, but she is speaking on their behalf as well. All the people who work on uh, airlines. So here's what we got to say to Mr. Trump.
get yours Suckers to the side, I know you hate my 98 You're gonna get yours Understand I don't drive drunk, my 98 fly I don't drive no joke, no cop got a right to call me a punk Take this ticket, go to hell and stick it Put me on a kick, but line up, time's up This government needs a tune-up I don't know what's happening, what's a gun in my chest I'm under If you're like the majority of Americans, you're actually a low-mileage driver. Road trips out of town. Indian legislation's on the desk of a do-right congressman. Now he don't know much about the issue, so he picks up the phone. And he asks advice of the senator out in Indian country. A darling of the energy companies who are ripping off what's left of the reservations. Huh. Safety rope, I don't know who to thank Don't stand between the reservation and the corporate bank They'll send in federal tanks It isn't nice but it's reality Bury my heart, it won't let me
I have to say something about um, corporate globalization. I started by gesturing towards uh, Walmart. Uh, and, and, and I have to say that corporate globalization has become the major threat to democracy in the world. But the problem is that capitalism represents itself as synonymous with democracy. That is what George Bush is talking about when, he's, when, when, when he calls for the defense of democracy against terror. That is the democracy that the US military is fighting to protect in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. It's not democracy, it's capitalism, or it's a democracy that uses capitalism as its model, that sees the free market as the paradigm for freedom, the, and that sees competition as the paradigm for freedom. Now, corporations are linked to the global marketing of imprisonment. They discover enormous profits in this area. Prisons at the expense of housing and healthcare and education and other social services. As a matter of fact, the, 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 the neoliberal um, conception of economic freedom requires the government to withdraw from virtually all social services. The market is supposed to determine everything. Freedom, freedom emerges because um, uh, the, the market will determine the distribution of education, the distribution of healthcare. And, and according to the Chicago Boys and Milton Friedman and, and those people, it will even itself out and it will, you know, I guess they still believe in Adam Smith's invisible hand, right? That somehow or another, uh, uh, freedom will uh, reveal itself. Um, but when we look at the extent to which countries in the southern region have been devastated by these new policies and devastated by the juggernaut of privatization, a country like South Africa, which is, which is still, I suppose, our hope for a non-racist and non-sexist and non-homophobic society, they're, they're experiencing enormous problems precisely as a result of privatization that is required by the IMF and other international financial uh, organizations as um, uh, that which countries must do who wish to get, um, to get international loans. It's really scary. And we see that kind of structural adjustment having happened in this country. That is why we're confronted with this crisis of health care and why health care has become totally privatized since the 1980s, totally privatized. And they, there was an attempt to totally privatize the prison system as well. It worked in some places, it didn't quite work in others, but we see the insinuation of private corporations uh, into the, um, the prison system all over this country. And I wonder why we do not find it utterly shameful that it is possible now to visit countries in the global 
South and discover that while their educational systems and housing subsidies and jobs have deteriorated over the last quarter century under the impact of globalization, it is often possible to discover a shiny new prison that would lead one to believe that one had been teleported back to Colorado or <laughs> California. And of course, we use the term prison industrial complex to point out that there is this global proliferation of prisons and prisoners that is more clearly linked to economic and political structures and ideologies than to individual criminal conduct and efforts to curb crime. I have to say something about um, corporate globalization. I started by gesturing towards uh, Walmart. Uh, and, and, and
This is a Radio Label World Report recorded on Friday, January 25th, 2019. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, stopping employers from forcing employees to wear high heels at work. Labor's fight for free quality education. The Labor Start report about union events around the world and singing. There's nothing they can do, cause we're unions through and through. This is Radio Labor. As women around the world were marching for their rights at work and against violence, the labor movement in Canada was continuing its fight against one particular problem, employers forcing employees to wear high heels at work. The campaign was boosted when unions in the province of Alberta convinced the government to implement a ban on the practice. To find out more about the issue, I talked to Siobhan Vipond. Ms. Vipond is the Secretary-Treasurer of the Alberta Federation of Labour. I asked Ms. Vipond first to describe the problems of wearing high heels at work. The problem behind wearing high heels kind of falls into two categories. Um, one is the physical health of the workers who are forced to wear them, and then the other side of it is the harassment um, that is associated with that kind of wear. Obviously, the physical health, high heels are not the recommended footwear for many activities, especially related to what happens in the hospitality. And so they're identified as one of the most common workplace hazards, hazards in the hospitality industry in Alberta by the Hospitality Safety Association. So we're talking about slips and falling that are a constant risk, but then there's also long-term risks which are associated with this prolonged use of high heels and I mean, they can be anything from, you know, bunions and ingrown toenails, hammer toes, to, and then there's back pain, also osteoarthritis in the knees. And the higher the heel, the worse the impact or the increased impact uh, that that can have. And then, of course, the harassment side of it and the, you know, reasoning behind a high heel in these situations where it's, you know, quite honestly not practical means that we're asking people to dress in a sexualized and a, a very gendered way. And with that often comes, not only is that a, an act of harassment, it also welcomes that and, and, and includes that. And it's, it's not related to the job. It's really just this separate thing that is not needed for someone to, to be very good at their job in the hospitality industry. How widespread is the problem? Well, when we look at the numbers, um, and these, of course, are 2018 numbers, about 148,000 people work in the accommodation and food service industry, and just under 58% of them are women. And so mandatory high heels could theoretically affect all of those. And I think many listeners probably know in their just their regular, you know, the restaurants that they use and the places that they use, you can, if you start noticing that some places, the uniforms where all of the women are wearing them. So it is, it is rampant, um, but it also has the potential to affect up to uh, 85,000 workers in Alberta. Ms. Vipon, you are the secretary-treasurer of the Alberta Federation of Labor. Was the AFL involved in getting the government to implement the ban? Well, the AFL, um, and along with the you know labor movement in Canada, we do a lot of work to try and increase occupational health and safety standards in our jurisdictions. And so the Alberta Federation of Labor absolutely has been working. Um, this has been a longstanding want of ours or need or what we think. So we've been lobbying. Um, we've done papers. It's been in our submissions where we were asking for this ban. And quite honestly, because the 
the idea that someone needs to wear gendered clothes or gendered uniform in these jobs is not justified by the work. So that means then we have to look at what the reasoning behind that is. And then we're looking at a getting into the harassment. And so, so absolutely, the labor movement believes in this, and the AFL did work with government. So absolutely, the labor movement believes that it's not justified for people to be successful in their jobs, and so it is not necessary, and so then it is an undue risk to the women who are forced to wear them. January 24th, 2019, is the first International Day of Education. The day has been established by UNESCO to remind people about the importance of quality education for the development of human-centered societies. As a United Nations agency, UNESCO is working on the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. Goal number four calls for inclusive and equitable quality education and lifelong learning. One of the labor organizations which supports the day is Education International. EI is the global union federation which represents teachers and other education workers. Its affiliated unions include some 32 million workers in 172 countries. To find out more about the work towards quality education in the world, I talked to Haldis Holst. Ms. Holst is Education International's Deputy General Secretary. I asked her about the efforts in meeting the UN's Sustainable Development Goal 4. We are moving forward towards the goal, but there's an awful lot way to, still to go. There are so many children out of school. There are so many children that are not offered quality education and definitely a lot of children that are not offered free education. So we are still working hard on the ground through our affiliates and also from the global level to remind governments which they actually signed on to when they adopted the Sustainable Development Goal, and specifically Goal 4, they still have a lot of work to do. Is Education International concerned about any particular regions of the world? Well, we know that some of the largest uh, challenges do lie, like on the African continent, and uh, specifically, you know, South of Sahara, but also there are, in all continents, there are challenges, because this goal is about offering all children quality education and I think just about every country on the planet do have some groups of children that they still haven't been able to reach with the quality level of education that's good. You know, there may be indigenous children, there may be disabled children, maybe children living in remote areas. So it's not just about the aggregated numbers, it's about that every single child matters and every single child has a right to receive quality education. So we need to be on the alert everywhere. I have heard some people argue that one of the most effective ways of providing education is to privatize the educational systems, to bring in private operators. What does Education International think of that idea? We're not too fond of that one because uh, actually it is a government responsibility, which they have signed on, to, uh, to offer education and that the education, at least primary and secondary, they've also committed to has to be free of charge. And it's very difficult, especially if you're a commercial private actor, to deliver education that is free on delivery for the children. And it's also that governments cannot sort of outsource their responsibility. Uh, education is a public good. It's their responsibility as a government to their citizens to make sure that you get education, which actually is an individual human right. So we're not too fond of the actors that are in there to make a profit off children. 
Education International has been conducting a long-time campaign to make education free of charge. This includes university education, tertiary education, as it's called. How has that campaign been going? We must admit that the world has not signed on to that tertiary education should be free of charge. They have not signed on to that early childhood education should be free of charge. They've signed on to that it should be affordable and accessible. We would have wished that it was all free of charge to really be accessible for all. And it's not such a utopia. I actually come from a country where higher education is free of charge. Of course, you have to pay your living costs and so on. But it is possible to do it if you actually invest in it and see it as an investment in your population for the future. We're not quite there yet. But it's uh, about taking steps and making sure that you have schemes on the, the ground which may actually makes it possible for students to, uh, to study and it's to invest in public higher education. That you make sure you have quality public institutions that don't need to make a profit off their students. Do you have an example of where free education, especially at the university level, is working? Well, I'm from Norway, and Norway has free higher education. At least our public universities are free. There is no uh, tuition fee to study at the university. And you have student loan schemes where you have grants and loans for students for their living costs and to buy their books and so on. So it's not that you get all your books for free, but you do not pay a tuition. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a tiny sample of the hundreds of union news stories in 31 languages added to our site each day last week. Our top story section included links to coverage of the arrests of trade union activists in Zimbabwe and Iran, the repression of teacher trade unionism in the Philippines, and the key role played by the Sudanese Doctors' Union in organizing huge anti-government protests. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Turkish workers at a building materials manufacturer down tools to press for a wage increase and workplace safety improvements. Healthcare workers at private medical facilities in Tunisia stopped work when their employers failed to offer a satisfactory wage increase. 70,000 schools in the Indian state of Bihar were without midday meals for students, and attendance dropped drastically when the women who prepare the meals escalated their wage dispute to a full-blown walkout. When negotiations did not resume, they moved to a sit-down blockade of the state's chief minister's residence. Uber drivers in England held a day-long walkout in their fight for a living wage. Amazon workers across Europe held coordinated strikes on Prime Day, Amazon's invented shopping holiday. Portuguese nurses held four days of essential services-only actions in an effort to kickstart negotiations for a new collective agreement. Cambodian garment workers spontaneously downed tools when their employer moved some production equipment out of their factory for fear that it might be closed. And teachers in Zimbabwe braved state repression, including violence, and struck on Monday. Our top working women's stories included coverage of union demands for more women's toilets on construction sites in the United Kingdom, yet another report detailing the abuses suffered by garment workers in Pakistan, and the employers in Pakistan and the brands around the world that enjoy impunity from prosecution for that abuse. 
and the release of a report which concludes that one-third of all United Nations workers, a huge majority of them women, have been sexually harassed. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the decision by Haitian hospital doctors to perform only emergency duties for a day after two of their comrades were assaulted at work and the results of budget cutting on lorry safety inspections in the United Kingdom. Currently, Labor Start is running six online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here's a labor song, the anthem of the Construction, Forestry, Mining, Maritime, and Energy Union of Australia, the CFMEU. Cheat us, they won't shake us, they can't beat us, and they won't break us. They tried it all before with the tricks and legal wars, and there's nothing they can do, cause we're unions through and through. by the Eurekas, Rob Mitchell and Ken Walker. And that's it. International labor news you can use. I'm Mark Bolanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. our um, <clears throat> radio labor <clears throat> excuse me radio labor and their weekly labor report about events all over the world today high heels cafeteria workers uber drivers and I need to go back and review some of the music we've been playing I haven't uh, identified it the last one was the Chambers Brothers, with their version of the Cur- Curtis Mayfield uh, 
song, People Get Ready. Before that, Angela Davis talking about the corporate industrial complex, putting people in jail and making money off it. Buffy St. Marie before that with Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee from the uh, Stephen Vincent Benet poem, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and also the, <coughs> the history by D. Brown, Bury My Heart at Union Wounded Knee, an overview of the theft of the... Uh, North and South American continents by Europeans. Um, Public Enemy was on a, was one one of our early hits. Our introduction. You're going to get yours. Nina Simone with her elegy of the great civil rights leader and labor leader, as we're going to see Martin Luther King. Worldwide Suicide by Pearl Jam. And to start it all off, one that I just found, or I refound, I should say. Let's work together by Canned Heat. Okay, I'd like to play some more music now. And um, well, let's talk about Martin Luther King. I wanted to talk about Martin Luther King, and this is on Portside, and it's by a man named Peter Cole. Martin Luther King Jr., Union Man. The day after King's death, longshoremen shut down the ports of San Francisco and Oakland, as they still do when one of their own dies on the job. 9 ILWU members attended King's funeral in Atlanta, including Harry Bridges and Cleophas Williams. If Martin Luther King Jr. still lived, he'd probably tell people to join unions. King understood racial equality and was inextricably linked to economics. He asked rhetorically, what good does it do to be able to eat at a lunch counter if you can't buy a hamburger? These disadvantages have persisted. Today, for instance, the wealth of the average white family is more than 20 times that of a black one. King's solution was unionism. A union paper reported that King appealed in his September 21, 1967 address to Local 10 for, union, for unity between the labor movement and the Negro freedom movement. 1961, King spoke before the AFL-CIO, the nation's largest and most powerful labor organization, to explain why he felt unions were essential to civil rights progress. Our needs, let's underline this, our needs are identical with labor's needs. Decent wages, fair working conditions, livable housing, old age security, health and welfare measures, 
conditions in which families can grow, have education for their children, and respect in the community. While King knew about this union, ILWU history isn't widely known off the waterfront. Dock workers had suffered for decades from a hiring system compared to a slave auction. Once hired, they routinely worked 24 to 36-hour shifts, experienced the highest rates of injury and death of any job, and endured abusive bosses. And they did so for cheap, cheap wages. Anyway, read this one. It's on Portside, Martin Luther King, Union Man. In 1967, King walked in Paul Robeson's footsteps when he was inducted into Local 10 as an honorary member. The same year, Cleophas Williams became the first black person elected president of Local 10. By that year, half its members were African American. Leftist unions like the ILWU embraced black workers because, reflecting their ideology, they contended workers were stronger when united. They also knew that countless times employers had broken strikes and destroyed unions by playing workers of different ethnicities, genders, nationalities, and races against each other. Hear, hear. Martin Luther King, Union Man. And um, Facebook, I wanted to talk about, uh, people talk about tax the rich. Okay, here's one. Companies union appeal for federal intervention against the strike in Matamoros. Mexico, uh, auto factory, I believe. After their 12th day of strike, tens of thousands of workers in Matamoros, Mexico, mostly auto parts workers, continue to paralyze almost half of the 110 maquiladoras plants in the city. The strike has sent shockwaves across the North American auto industry. Ford and GM workers in the United States report part shortages in the WSWS Auto Workers newsletter, while the U.S. and international media are censoring the strike. On Tuesday, the corporation sent appeals to President Andres Manuel López Obrador, known as AMLO, to intervene directly through both repression and by appealing to workers to accept a rotten compromise. The communique read, Appealing to your mandate and authority, we ask for your intervention since this moment of instability that the labor and business sectors living in Matamoros can bring irreversible consequences for the region's economy. 
shamelessly. The statement admits that the contracts have a clause tying directly their bonuses with a minimum salary, which the companies have refused to pay. Shortly after, Juan Villafuerte, leader of the main union, seconded this call. It's very, very, very necessary now. The interaction of the labor secretary or the president himself. So the union itself is trying to get these wildcat strikers. Calls for federal intervention come as maquiladoras threaten to lay off workers and shut production. With many workers reporting mass firings, police and Navy officials have been deployed to intimidate strikers. On Monday evening, one striker, Juan Jose, was violently attacked by unidentified thugs when he was returning home after participating in a mass march. Striking workers have responded to these calculated acts of violence with enormous bravery. So, check that one out. The union and the, of course, the corporations are against the workers who are, who are going out in protest. Uh, promised bonuses and not getting them paid. Eh? Right. Okay. Of course, the Los Angeles teachers' strike. Let's talk about that after some music. But right now, it's a tax the rich can't avoid. New income is only a fraction of their fortunes. We need to target their wealth. And here, as I always say, I mean... The rich and their spokespeople are always complaining that they pay so much money in taxes. Well, that's like a shell game. That's getting you to look away. Well, what's really happening is right in front of you. And right in front of you is the fact that it's not about how much the rich pay in taxes. It's how much they have left after they pay. Has their, has their wealth been affected? I mean, that wealth is, is what's... That's where the money is for our schools and our hospitals and our child care and our government services. That's where the money went. That's where it is. Wealth tax a policy to break up enormous unearned assets of super-rich families. Unearned assets. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Unearned assets. It's a win-win idea for the American people, an idea no conventional politician would have the guts to put forward. And who said that? Trumpy Dumpty proposing a one-time tax on wealth. Can't we just raise the income tax? Wealth equality is worse than income equality. 
The top 1% now own more wealth than the bottom 90 combined. Three families with multi-generational wealth, the Waltons, the Coaches, and the Marses, have a combined fortune of $365.7 billion, 5 million times the median wealth of U.S. families. Increasing the income tax on the top brackets is a good policy, but it doesn't tackle the immense dynastic wealth handed down from the ultra-rich to their descendants. Don't we have an estate tax? Yes, but it's full of exemptions and loopholes that have benefited people like Sheldon Adelson and Donald Trump. The right has steadily chipped away at its effectiveness, painting it as a death tax on families who have just lost loved ones. Trump nearly succeeded in axing it entirely in the 2018 tax bill, and the final version passed by the GOP will reduce taxation on wealthy states by an estimated $383 billion dollars. One alternative is simply to extend the federal tax to include large inheritances. Dozens of developed countries like Japan, the UK, and France tax wealth in this manner. While we add it, we could also tax the wealth before the rich die. An additional 1% wealth tax on households with more than $20 million in assets would bring an estimated $1.9 trillion in review over the next in revenue over the next decade, according to the Institute for Policy Studies. What could we do with all that money? Lead pipe replacement, universal housing, student debt cancellation, oh my. Since concentrated wealth also translates to outside political power, look at the Koch brothers. Bringing up these fortunes gets us closer to a system of government where don't make the rich people mad is no longer the driving principle. Is this actually possible? Beginning in the 1890s, reformers used taxes to expropriate the fortunes of the Gilded Age. Marginal taxes on the rich rose as high as 94% in 1944, resulting in steadily deconcentration of wealth up until the 1980s, followed by a rapid shift back in the other direction with the advent of Reaganomics and neoliberal economic policy. The aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis and thanks to Occupy, Bernie and a renewed movement for democratic socialism, there's real momentum to take on the billionaires. Here, here, will it ever happen? Will we ever get back to the time where the rich were paying more instead of less? 
All right, mutiny time. This is the Labor and Love Show. Take a little break now before we go into our last half hour or so. Side 
allá arriba iré, yo no creo en fronteras Yo no creo en fronteras, yo cruzaré, yo cruzaré, yo cruzaré
Okay, we had, uh, <clears throat> of course, Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody, something we always want to remember in this show, we always remind you of, you got to serve somebody, you got to serve somebody. Before that, we had the Bamba Rebelde, it sounded just like the Bamba, but it was infused with the politics of Chicanismo. And before that, we had Annie DeFranco singing uh, Which Side Are You On? Let's see now. L.A. Teachers. Let me make sure and get L.A. Teachers Strike. Um, I wanted to get someone talking about it, but I guess... Teachers across Los Angeles fought hard and after just a week of striking, got more or less what they had hoped for. More librarians and nurses for their schools, smaller class sizes, and nicer campuses. Not on that list, higher pay. The teachers had already successfully negotiated a 6% raise before the strike. This is the most significant part of the LA teachers' strike story and the key to understanding the broader dynamics of today's teachers' movement. Salaries were never a major sticking point. Final figure for the raise is 6%, identical to the numbers of, that the LA Unified School District Teachers Union had outlined in its most recent set of offers. In fact, pretty much the same number negotiated even before the strike began. So they were striking for other things, they were striking for nurses on every campus. Okay, as a teacher myself, this is a <clears throat> absolutely one of the best things you can have at a school is a nurse. So many of the problems of kids in learning have to do with physical problems like sickness, things like asthma, uh, things like attention deficit disorder. Okay. 
counselors. They're going to add another 17 counselors, which probably doesn't, won't change much. The average Los Angeles public high school counselor's caseload was 378 students. Now, how are you going to get anything done with 378 students? I had a colleague who taught high school in L.A. She had 56 students in her class. Topping the union's list of priorities were demands around class sizes, which in many schools often exceeded the limits stipulated in the teacher's previous contract, and in some cases well upwards of 40 kids. <clears throat> so these are all things that the teachers were striking for. Also a scheme, they defeated a scheme that was being hatched by the uh, superintendent to divide the district into 32 much smaller districts and uh, having control um, theory, in theory, community control over those areas or at least community input. But... Uh, that was defeated. It would be a way for charter schools to make more headway. Um, I wonder, I read a, a rebuke of this. Let's see, teachers. Teachers are victims of their own The National Review, of course, a conservative victim of its own success. It won lavish benefits. Lavish benefits. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. Let's look it up again. My computer's acting up on me here. Listen to um, some jazz from... Okay, well, we'll have to get to that next week. I was looking forward to see. Um, the National Review was saying that by winning so much, they had uh, increased the call for charter schools. I don't know. We'll have to see that. Anyway, this is the B signing off.
and um, another another. Hope you have a good week, and I hope you have uh, good work. And um, I hope you remember that never, never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Hope you remember that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. And I hope you recall that if you don't have a seat at the table, at the negotiating table that is, you're probably on the menu. Let's see. I want to get uh, Kaori Miraji. Kaori Miraji to play the Internacional. Next week, have a good week and good work. This is the B signing. of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutinyradio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Asiento, take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas, and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento, honestly, is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls. Trivia on Mondays, Taco Tuesdays, First Wednesday, live jazz, live DJs Thursday, parties. The food is darn good special happy hour prices all night long with your mutiny radio comedy festival ticket march 1st through 5th check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com come take a seat i had a date there and it did not go well but it wasn't the fault of the place they're very nice asiento
for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Everybody should listen to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. Welcome. Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco. Your favorite bar with awesome bartenders, rotating local art, and a killer back patio. It's a great place to hang out and play one of their two pool tables or old school pinball machine with a tasty adult beverage. Live music every Saturday for only $5. Bender's brings you face-melting metal and rock and roll. The last Friday of the month, punk rock and schlock delivers super fun karaoke with Aileen. Come on, what's not to like? They even have counter offer inside, frying up the tots with sexy hot burgers for your face. Open every day at 2 p.m. Their happy hour goes till 7 p.m. Benders is proud to be a sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival because they're an awesome community asset to the dirtbags who keep art alive in the mission. Benders Bar and Grill. Hi, welcome to My Limited View. I am your host, Sergio Novoa. And I'm your co-host, Vanessa Wilkins. Join us every Tuesday from 12 to 2 at mutinyradio.fm as we share stories, our personal stories. And struggles and challenges. And we'll also have guests come in and share their stories. And hopefully through all this, we can expand our view. Or your view. Yes, and there'll be plenty of dick jokes, so don't worry. It's not always going to be heavy. Yeah, I might even share black hair tips. Black hair tips, don't. <laughs> know anything about it sorry all on my limited view yes every tuesday from 12 to 2 uh oh you can if you can also find us on apple Podcasts. oh yeah and google play and stitcher itunes oh you already said that tune in radio uh stitcher you said that spotify oh my god there's just so many and overcast um yes you can also find us on social media m as in mary l as in larry p as in peter podcast mov podcast is our handle 
Until next time, I hope you're enjoying your view. Yes. Bye. Bye. That kind of sucked balls. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for near five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. (laughs) Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Mutiny Radio listener, it's that time of year again. March 1st through 5th, it's time for the 4th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Over 40 comics, 25 shows, 5 days, all here at Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street. 25 shows, 5 days, amazing comics from all over the United States here in San Francisco to entertain 